Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. So this week we read Parshat Baha another one of those classic, wonderful Parshiot of Bamidbar that has a million different things going on and lots of different things to talk about. And what I wanted to look at today is chapter 11 of Bamidbar, which tells the story of the Israelites complaining about not having food. So let's look at that in a little bit of detail, and then we'll talk about why Moshe and God have the reaction that they do, and what that teaches us about the dynamics that are at play. So we look at chapter 11. Now, the first three psukim tell us about a previous situation that happened, that the people were kemit onanim, they're just kvetching. Uh, some of the commentaries say they were just complaining generally. I think it's a Sforno says they were just kvetching. They didn't even, wasn't anything specific. It's just, you know, we've all either felt this way or dealt with people who just kvetch a lot. And so it was general. And so God hears and then sends a fire that breaks out along, along the outside of the camp. The people cry out to Moshe. Moshe prays to God, the fire dies down, and then it's called, the place is called Tavera as a result. And uh, some people say it means that people were killed by this fire. Um, I actually would like to suggest that it just means that that the outskirts was were on fire and it was under threat of the camp being destroyed, but not necessarily anyone being killed. But anyway, then we transition right into Pasuk Dala, the fourth Pasuk, when the Asaf Suf, they feel um, a craving, a desire, and then the people cry and they say, oh, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now we have nothing at all, just mana. So we'll see, there are a few interruptions, but Moshe basically completely panics uh, to God and says, what, what is happening here? Why have you done this to me? Did I carry these people? He uses imagery of pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, where am I going to get all this meat to give them? I can't do this. I can't do this. Please just kill me. And then we have a little pause uh, where Hashem gathers actually a a council uh, for Moshe of 70 elders. And then we see that there is a plan to enact a punishment for the people, that the wind comes and there's quail, there's gonna be meat everywhere, and the people come out, they're gathering, they're so excited. Um, And then as the Torah says, Habasar Odenu Ben Shinehem, that the meat was still bit between their teeth, they hadn't even chewed it yet when the anger of God blazed forth against the people and there was a very severe plague. So, and then also I should say the next pasuk tells us that the place was called Kivrot Ta'ava, the burial of the desire because Kisham Kavru Eta'am Hamit Avim, because there they buried the people who had been craving, which clearly tells us that whatever this plague was, it did kill the people who had actually committed the sin. So this feels like a classic Bamidbar story in that sense, because there are definitely times where the people fight and then there are major punishments as a result. However, it's important for us to note that this is, first of all, the first time in Bamidbar that the people complain. It's the first time in Bamidbar that the people, people complain and have this kind of punishment. Not So if, if I think the first time anything happens within a book, even if it becomes part of a pattern, is significant. And not only that, but more strikingly, it is not the first time they complain in the Torah. At, in Parshat B'Shalach, after 
they cross the sea and they have all of the wonderful, you know, the song and the joy, etc. They probably start to kvetch again. They complain, we don't have water. We don't have food. Why did you take us out of Egypt just so we could die in the wilderness? That's the classic line they say over and over again in Shemot. And as, if you read the Torah in sort of a circular fashion, meaning you don't read it always chronologically, linearly, those of us who know that people, that they get punished all the time in Bamidbar for complaining, we would expect to see back in Shemot when they complain after crossing the sea that Hashem's going to punish them as well. And I think that we're almost surprised, given what we know about what happens later in the Torah, to find that Hashem doesn't punish them. Hashem actually just answers and gives them what they need, gives them water, gives them food. That's when they get the man, etc. And so, in fact, we shouldn't be surprised by Shemot, but if we're reading the Torah chronologically, literally, we should be surprised when we get to Bamidbar and they complain. And instead of being patient with them, giving them what they want, God gives them what they want, the quail, the quail but only uses it as a way to make the punishment even worse, that they had a chance to bite into the meat, but not even to chew it. And that's when they're killed. And so the question is why? What changed here? to have it be such a different reaction. And I think that we have to look carefully at the exact complaint that they have in the beginning of chapter 11 in order to really appreciate that. So as we said, back in Shemot, the complaints are, why did you take us out of Egypt, where at least we had water, we had food? Uh, also the complaint before they crossed the Red Sea, why'd you take us out here to die in the wilderness, right? At least we had back in Egypt, yeah, we were slaves, we had jobs. Now, why'd you take us out here just to die? That's the gist of the complaint. And here, it's a little bit different. First, they say, Mi achilenu basar, uh, translated by the GPS, if only we had meat to eat. Right? We're not complaining about not having food. We're complaining about the kind of food that we have. And then it gets worse. We remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. They go into this like elaborate menu of everything that they missed. And then they say, Our gullets, our, our souls are dried up because we only have the man. Which you know, it's different than starving. Now they're not complaining because there isn't food. That's a legitimate anxiety is to not be able to not have food. But now they have food. They just don't like they're getting sick of it and they want a better menu. It reminds me of trying to negotiate dinner with my three-year-old, right? You have what you have, but then you just want something else and you want something else is never enough. And so I think that that's part of the problem of the attitude is that it's not about life or death. It's just about your palate. But then it gets even worse if you look at verse 5 carefully. It says, We remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt. Now, means for free. So we remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. And then the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. And I think that this word is really the key to understanding why this is so problematic especially in comparison to the other incidents in Schmotes. Here, they're not just complaining, they're not complaining because they don't have food and they're worried they're going to be hungry. And they're not just complaining because they're sick of the food. They're actually completely twisting the reality of their existence in Egypt in order to complain about their existence now in the Midbar 
which is after God has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And they're twisting it in such a, a such a shocking, profound way to say, yeah, remember all that fish we got for free? I mean, what's for free? You were slaves. What do you mean you got free fish? The Ramban says that actually what, what it refers to is some of them, they're, they're form of slavery was that they were the fishermen. And part of the deal was that they would go out and fish all day. They'd come bring it to the Egyptian masters. They would get to keep a little bit of it as, you know, the very basic compensation so that their families can remain, could remain, remain fed. So of course, to then say we had fish for free is such a distortion. I mean, it's such a denial of what their actual reality in Egypt was. And I think that's so offensive to God, because if you deny what your reality was in Egypt, then you're effectively denying what God has done for you by redeeming it. They're not saying at least we were okay in Egypt. They're saying we had it good in Egypt. They're saying, you know, we, it's almost like saying they were royalty or something. And now they're the schleppy, you know, people in the wilderness who, who don't get a variety in their diet. It's such a, it's such an insult to God. It's an insult to the exodus. It's an insult to the entire purpose of them as a people that I think that's why that's what prompts God to, to shift gears here and not use this as a teaching opportunity in a constructive way, but rather as an opportunity to, to punish them and eliminate the people from this community who were chutzpahdik enough to say this out loud and to actually articulate it, right? That attitude is not something that can be forgiven. It's something that has to be eliminated. Um, and I, I, I think that this is, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting point both just for the story itself, but also I think about, about human nature. Um, we know that nostalgia is a very powerful feeling. It's a powerful tool. We often look back on things in our past with rose-colored glasses. We romanticize them. We say, wouldn't things be, you know, things were so much easier in those days, or when I was a kid, everything was simple, or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I think that Oftentimes, when we look back at things, we tend to oversimplify them. And our nostalgia makes us feel like things were so much better back then, which makes us feel like whatever we have in the present is worse. It's not as good. But oftentimes, the human memory distorts those realities. And we remember things that we, we wish that were positive, um, but then actually weren't that positive. I think a, a classic example is the idea it, both in a lot of messianism in Judaism and certainly in, in things like Eicha for Tisha B'av, that we want to return to a time of, of the Davidic dynasty when things in the kingdom was united. But then if you read those stories as they appear in the book, you say, wait a minute, things actually weren't that good then either. Uh, but of course, if you're living through it at the time, it doesn't feel that special. It's only afterwards you look back at it that it feels special. But the big risk with that is that there's a distortion that can come along with it and that we have to be very careful with nostalgia when it comes to serious issues that can be an over-romantization of the past because that leads us not just to feel warm feelings inside for things that were, but also potentially to really distort the reality and, and cause severe damage in that way. Shabbat Shalom.